Hello you, tuning in to Psychomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Hello and welcome to Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy. During lockdown, Psychomedy came out every day in the spin-off series Daily Dose. One of the guests in that series was the brilliant Maria Shahata. In this Daily Dose episode, we refer to her main episode of Psychomedy that hadn't been aired yet as it was recorded before lockdown but scheduled to go out just as it was all kicking off. But we said in the Daily Dose we will put it out once things have calmed down a bit. So here we are with a partial, slight return of live comedy. We bring to you Maria Shahata's episode of Psychomedy. So let's go back to a world where live comedy existed, lockdown wasn't a word, and coronavirus was still a news in brief on page 17 of the newspapers. Welcome to Psychology. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage, alongside being a stand-up comedian for the last 10 years, has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the brilliant Maria Shahata. Maria, how are you today? I'm alright, how are you? Very good, very good. So, as normal on Psychomedy. We won't be looking at each other for the duration of the chat. Maria is sitting up here on my sofa. So, Maria, you're doing your new show at the moment, Hero, or your current show, Hero. Uh, you did it last night, did you, at Vault Festival? I did, yes. How did that go? It was good. Um, yeah, it's, um, it was the second one of the Vault run. Yeah. And, you know, first one's always like, get back into it. Second one's a little bit more smooth, so it was... Uh, so it was better. Hopefully tonight will be better than that. Yeah. Is this one you're going to do in Edinburgh this year? or? No, I don't think so. I think uh, if I do a show in Edinburgh, it'll be a work in progress. And I'm just going to try to, I'm going to try to take old stuff, add new stuff and come up with a really, really strong hour that I would want to put out there into the world. Nice, nice. And you've been a comedian like me for about 80 years, haven't you? So um, um, do you have any particular anxieties as you're building a show now? Yeah, it's 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 like a lot of it is, does anyone care? <laughs> does anyone care? Like, I'm very personal. I'm talking about my life and I'm like, does anyone give a shit? But like, you know, I mean, I don't sometimes I feel like whatever I'm talking about isn't that relatable. And uh I like to be relatable. I like people to like my, my best moment when I'm doing comedy is like when I see somebody in the audience turn to their friend and go and like do this knowing look. Yeah. Nice. Like that's really cool. But I don't know. You, you just like you do a show and, and like all I know how to talk about is myself. <laughs> just very personal in that way because that's 
what I feel like an authority on. Yeah. And uh, and if people don't care, then I haven't done my job. <laughs> yeah. So are you looking for those visual clues then when you're on stage? Not necessarily. It's I just but I just want like I want people to connect with what I'm doing. So, um, I guess it would be after if people just get up and leave. It's yeah. hurtful. It's like if you if you cook a big meal, <laughs> and you present it and people eat it and then they just leave and you go. Did they like it? Like, <laughs> yeah. I've, you know, I spent a lot of time on it. Yeah. But if they, if they're like, oh my god, this is so good, we love it. Like, um, uh, then it's just more satisfying. Even though if it's like it's my meal and I like the meal, it shouldn't matter what they like, <laughs> you know. So are you at the door then when people leave, saying goodbye to people? No. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know whether they've? They've they seek me out. <laughs> um, well, in Edinburgh, yeah, I was at the door because I had a bucket. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it was like you get a lot of praise there, but then people walk by you and say nothing, and that hurts. And it shouldn't <laughs> hurt. It shouldn't hurt. It does. Um, but, like, at fault, they go one way, I go the other. But sometimes people, like, walk up to me. Um, and, so, yeah, but yeah. some people, even on, a, even on a paid show, they'll stand at the door looking for those, looking for those reactions. Isn't that, Is that a bit... Sort of, I know it could be needy, but it's something that I think has become more common. I heard uh, that was something comedians made fun of other comedians for doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unless I have something to, to pass, I wouldn't just stand at the door waiting for my compliment. <laughs> like if I had a business card to pass out or like, you know, or a bucket or if there was a reason I was at the door, I would do it or, you know. Well, the <sighs> excuse is that, well, when, when I do it, I think I did it in, when, yeah, I, I do it quite regularly. I did it in Leicester. I'm just saying thank you for people, but I guess there is part of me, and I haven't really thought about this, that is, yeah, waiting, maybe waiting or asking for the compliments as well. But I think a huge part of me is saying thank you, particularly when they've paid, you know, good money to see it. I am thanking them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I guess <laughs> maybe I could, I'm just trying I guess to I could myself. be thanking them, but I do thank them on stage. I, I'm yeah, very, yeah, yeah. like, yeah. you know, thank you for coming and all. And, you know, so it would just be... I feel like it would be overdoing it if I then stood at the door and thanked him again. Plus, yeah. it's not like it was hundreds of people. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm lying to myself. Maybe I just want them to look me in the eye and say, I love you. I think that's all any comedian ever wants. <laughs> so, your show, Hero, um, it's about failed love, crippling debts, living with an angry 83-year-old. Not exactly what Maria had in mind when she left LA for the UK. Mm. So, haven't seen the show. Is this still the case? Is it uh, still living with an eighty-three-year-old? No. Oh. Okay. That was only for a few months. Okay. And I think they were looking for a reason for me to go because they wanted to move another carer in so that they can just share. So it was twenty-four-seven care. Okay. And I was obviously not going to do it because I have comedy and I, I'm I'm not a caring type. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah living living with Connie was was definitely a weird situation to be in I moved to London because I, I was engaged to a guy so like the I was supposed to have started a life like with a like a new like a starting a new family you know mm. and I was like in the new country with a with a fiance and I was like gonna start my my adult life <laughs> essentially and that didn't happen and then I was flung right back into this this um, living in precarious situations like I did throughout my 20s again. Mm. God, that must have been a difficult time then, breaking up with a fiancé and moving in with a someone you don't know. 
I kind of, I feel like I tend to get, there's something about me that doesn't like, maybe I don't like ruts or certainty or something. So it should have been a difficult time, but there's something very exciting about changing it up. Mm. Like I've moved, I've lived in, in, like I'm from Ohio. I lived in New York for four years. I was in LA for seven years. I've been here for four years in London. I've, I've lived in so many different apartments uh, I don't know what that is about me. Like a friend sort of diagnosed me as bipolar, like a mild form of it, but I, I, I don't see that. But like, there's something about me that really super loves changing. I get very excited about changing my life. I don't know what I'm saying, but I just, uh, maybe I just, no, I, I'm afraid of a rut. Are you searching for that certainty, searching for that permanence? And then as soon as you have it, you're scared by it and want out. Is that what you're saying? Kind of like not I don't know if it's scared. I just I just I can't help myself but like to change. It's yeah. like you know the movie Chocolat and like so so that woman kept moving around towns and bringing her daughter with her mm. and she was sort of a like a, a gypsy in that way. Mm. But wasn't actually a gypsy, but like um it was like the winds of change were what moved her and uh I have to change. I, I like, but I'm getting to the point. Like, like the older I get, the more I sort of want that. Um, I, uh, I, I would like a little more normalcy, like a little more um, um, routine in my life, so that I can. I, I very much like to plan and figure out what I'm doing, and it's hard to do when you're running around all over the place all the time. Mm. Like even with traveling with comedy, it's hard to get into a gym routine, or an eating routine, or like pre prepping a lunch for the week because I don't know where I'll be. At any given time, I don't have any, uh, like, normal pattern. Mm. That's what I'm saying. There seems to be a push and pull, and you're looking for that normal pattern. But then when you get into that normal pattern, maybe you'll be bored of it. Yeah, know? I'll be bored of it. Mm. Maybe. So, what? what is that? Doc, what is that about me? <laughs> <laughs> well, does this have anything to do with stand-up at all? I mean, we talked with... A few of the comedians I've talked to on this, like Kate Barron, um, she said getting into a, quote, normal relationship, settling down, if she smells that she's about to do that, then she runs from it. She wants that change because at the back of her mind or at the front of her mind, stand-up is the most important thing on her mind. So when she gets into that settled situation, she thinks, well, am I going to turn out like all those other comedians that settled down? and then gave up on their career. Have you ever thought about that, that stand-up has a part to play in? Because you've been doing stand-up from a, a very young age and kind of all, all your adult life, is that right? Yeah. So, um, do you think, think stand-up has any part to play in that in terms of the importance that you place on it? No. <laughs> I've never... I, I have a very love-hate relationship with stand-up, so I've never, like, placed it, like, as a priority. And I, I mean, obviously, like, I wouldn't want to be with somebody who stopped me from doing stand-up or if I was just in such, like, domestic bliss, I didn't want to do it anymore. But mm. I never really, like, thought as a of a relationship as a threat to my stand-up career. Right. But I do... I think maybe because I have such overbearing uh, parents, like, my, my father in particular is very, like, overprotective... That I, I, I feel trapped if if I feel like I'm in a situation that I have to, any situation where I feel obliged for, like even when I have an agent, it's sort of like, oh, it's too much. <laughs> like I feel like I have to answer to them or something. And 
I'm very like, I'm very much a free spirit. So I just need to know that I can be free. Mm. So if I'm in a relationship like that, I like I had a pattern of chasing men for a very long time because I felt safe in this dynamic that I knew wasn't going to happen. Maybe subconsciously, I knew it wasn't going to happen. So I'd put all my effort into the chase because I wasn't going to catch them. But if I did catch them, then I like then I would freak out because it was just like, uh, oh God, now I have this 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 trap, this relationship, this obligation to someone else, this like consideration for others. I don't know, like you know. But I'm in a relationship now, and it's been over a year, and we're in a good place. But he's so very much not a father figure. Like he just he isn't the type of person to be like. Oh, well, text me when you get home. I need to know you're safe or like, you know, let me know when you land. And, you know, he just isn't that guy. And I love it mm. um, because I feel like an adult around him and not someone that needs to be protected and, and, and cared for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned your father there. I've heard you talk uh, on other podcasts about him calling you every day. Does he still do that? Yeah. He's yeah. never going to not do that. I asked him, I was like, if I got married, would you have stopped the phone calls? And he was like, yeah. Because it's like, in in his mind, I'm his responsibility until I'm my husband's responsibility. But there's no, there's no, like, what if I was just my own responsibility? <laughs> like, why can't I just be my own person? Uh, is he still calling you at four o'clock? One regular time every day? Yep. Right. Right, and how about other family members? Are they ever calling you, or is it? Yeah, just... <laughs> my mom calls me, but it's it's more once every week, once every two weeks. Yeah, check in, make sure I'm okay. You know, like it's it's. I think it's a much healthier dynamic. Mm. Have you ever talked about that with your father? Yeah, of course. Of but he's like, no, like he's no. What are you talking about? No, I need to make sure you're okay. You can't like it's. He's an impossible person. <laughs> He's very stubborn. I'm very lucky that he cares about me. So it's like, it's nice that I have a father who loves me and cares about me. Mm. But there's no like autonomy. Like there's no, like, I feel like I've, I've, I've been a child for so long and I feel like it's because I just have this, I'm still answering to my father. Mm. Like it's still, I remember being engaged and my fiance being like, what do you care? Like I didn't for a long time, didn't even tell him I was living with my fiance. He was like, why don't you just tell him? Like you're an adult. And I had to really take that in. It was like, yeah, I'm in my 30s. Like, that's ridiculous. Mm. Well, it's a, very, it's a very common thing in psychology. Is it? With, well, with, with age, that we have our age and the number of years we've been alive. But what is our age? How do we feel? How have our parents made us feel? What age are we? We can be still a child if we haven't been allowed to do certain things, mm. you know? So that is a... That is a common thing. And how, how was it growing up with your father then? Was he overprotective there as a child? Oh, a hundred percent. Like to the point, um, uh, yeah, he just, he, yeah. Like if I wanted to stay over at a friend's, he had to call their parents, make sure it was okay. Talk to them. You know, if I went out, like if I like went over to a friend's house, if he said he was picking me up at 11, he was pulling into the driveway at 10 59 PM. Um, you know, he's just, uh, like if I had friends he didn't like, I wasn't allowed to hang out with them, you know, and some of them were, you know, bad news. Like mm -hmm. I, as I grow older, I'm like, yeah, they were, they were pretty shit. He was right to do that. But like, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of, um, tr like it's not trust with me. It's just distrust of the world. And so 
you know, but, but at the same time, it's not like he kept me from driving or like, mm. you know, he let me, he let me be a teenager, but it was just, but there was a lot of fighting with him for my own freedom. Mm. So you may be chasing that freedom now with the, with the change, with the change that you pursue all the time. You don't want to, is there anything you're rebelling against there? Yeah, well, I ask on stage, you know, and I, I ask the audience if they think it's sweet or overbearing that my dad calls me every day at 1 p.m. Mm. And it's always divided down the middle. Like half the people yeah. think it's really sweet. Half the people think it's overbearing. I think it has a lot to do with their own relationship with their with their parents and whether or not they're getting what they, you know, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I obviously I think like my lifestyle is a reaction to that. Like I just, I just, I'm always escaping. I always want to like, leave, go somewhere, try a different city, like try new things. And I mean, you know, it's, it's cool to have seen so much of the world, mm. but I don't know. I, I'm sure that was born out of like, um, feeling too coddled or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked to many standups on this, uh, where the parents have given no love and that has led to stand up to a certain degree that they're looking for love, maybe from the audience. But then we talked to Mark Dolan um, and he was talking about how his parents loved him so much and was telling him to be nice all the time and were very proud of him. You know, the, the, amount that, the amount of love that that is, whether that's overbearing or just great, it does lead to I guess some things with on a daily basis checking in and presumably he's asking how you are what you're up to yeah uh, it adds to pressures uh, such as oh, what how did today go how did last night's gig go mm. how what have you achieved today and there's a constant is there a constant kind of pressure to make him proud of what you've done in the last 24 hours you know yeah yeah uh yeah it's just yeah just this checking in this are you alive you know when he he's i mean a lot i think a lot of it is that he's he's not a lot of it but i think he's just not bored he still works like because he wants to work he could retire but like he like he actually likes accounting um <laughs> are there other siblings that he checks in with or does he check no in i have with an his... older brother and he lives in the same city and they see him every once in a while but it's not like a check-in like this okay um and has that been talked about why he doesn't check in with him i mean he's a boy all right but he does he does you know text my brother a lot and stuff mm. i you know who knows i just i it's it's a weird pressure to have your parents just think constantly about you. It's like you, yeah. you, you sort of want your parents just to have their own lives and like do their own thing. Mm. Um, and when, you're, when you feel constantly worried about... I feel guilty a lot. Like I'm not... Because for, for, for living this like life as a comedian, for not being married, for, for not doing anything that gives them any peace of mind mm. whatsoever. And I feel so bad about it because I know they worry about me all the time. And it's like that is a weight on my shoulders yeah yeah i can i can i can understand that that do you, do you yeah do you, do you feel that pressure then with regards to how well things go in comedy that you want to report back some good news is that a 
is that a constant extra pressure for you? Yeah. And yeah. even, you know, with the engagement, it was like, oh, finally, I have some good news for you. And then we broke up and I was like, sorry. <laughs> so it took me months to tell them. Oh, goodness. Um, and he was calling you every day saying, how are things? Yeah. And I was just sort of withholding this information. And, you know, my brother was like, you have to tell them. What are you doing? I was like, I don't know. It's just hard to like, let them down. Mm. But, I mean, obviously, they were so kind about it. And they were just like, you know, we don't want you to it's better to do it now than get married and be miserable. And like, they were so understanding. It's like, I don't let them grow up either. You know, they've changed a lot and I haven't updated that in my head. So there's still the, you know, parents I was as a teenager. So I'm afraid to tell them things. And Yeah. And I guess living apart from them adds to that, that you can't update that relationship so easily. Right. Distance. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a tricky one. Okay. So comedy anyway, without any additional pressures is difficult sometimes for mental health and your mind and particularly the Edinburgh Fringe or traveling. How, how has your experience been with that, uh, particularly around Edinburgh or anywhere else? Uh, Edinburgh is really, I think it's difficult on everyone as far as comedians and performers go Mm. it's just this intense there's nothing like it in the states it's such an intense thing Mm. to perform 24 26 nights in a row of a show that you've only had a year to build um and people are coming to publicly review you it's just i mean i don't know if like comedians here are just used to it but it's a culture that is like the reviews are something american comedians don't they're not it's not like a part of the american comedy culture Right. And just the pressure on you is so high. And I don't know how comedians who have only been doing it a couple of years, I don't know how they do that. I just really don't know where they get the, the balls to do that. <laughs> but um, A lot of people aren't coping very well and you don't see it. Really? A lot of the time. Yeah. Once you start digging, a lot of people are struggling. and It is, yeah. I mean, I've never really thought about it like that with America being so different. And and you have to get people in the door and you have to, and it's so much money. And then you're just, you're taking time off work that you could have been working back in the city you're from. And um, you really have to put all your chips in a basket. Is that all your eggs in one basket? You have to, like all of your resources. Chips and eggs and everything else. All All your cash, certainly. All of your resources go to this festival and you put everything in. And honestly, the festival's only good for, Liz Mealy and I were talking about this. She's like, the festival's only good for 2% of people. <laughs> That's yeah. like, the, like works out for like, just like, oh, like such a small amount of comedians actually get something amazing out of the festival and everyone else puts everything into it and come out with like a little bit less self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, it's Do you know, a... I think sometimes I think no one's getting anything out of that festival. No. <laughs> it's, it's, you, uh, we you... all think we are, but even the Edinburgh Comedy Award winners sometimes say to me, I got nothing out of that, really. Really? <laughs> the 10 grand I got, and then it's not done anything for my audience and things the like that. I'm grand, like, why, why are we all working towards this? You know? The 10 grand that barely pays for the PR you put in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, but like, it's just, you might come out as a better performer because obviously all yeah. that stage time is going to help, but it's, yeah. um, I don't know. I don't detriment. know if that's a humane thing to do to people. <laughs> yeah. So do you, have you seen the struggles either in yourself or other people that people I'm My own relationship, which is really strong in Edinburgh, like suffered a lot because just we were, you know, we were staying together and his, his own personal 
stress about the show. Plus, he's from Edinburgh and he has his own personal stuff going on. Then my own personal stress about the show. And just that just collides and we can't focus on each other. And of course, I'm talking about myself constantly. And he's like, you know, I'm here too. And it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just really a lot on a relationship that was really strong. And, and, and like, um, I watched another friend's relationship fall apart. Um, so, and I've seen people break up. I don't, I, you know, the fringe sort of provides a, a good opportunity. Like if you're going to be away from your partner for a month, it's a really good opportunity to just end it. <laughs> 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 and, um, you know, uh, like actually that's, you know, when I was engaged and I went up to the fringe, like we went on a break for that month right. and then we, we got back and broke up, but it's, it's a really good assessment period, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's, everyone's very stressed, everyone and no one, I don't think it's a very particular kind of stress that you can't <laughs> just Google like what to do when you have to perform 26 nights in a row and you've put all your money into it and you almost got fired from your job and you, you know, like, it's like, where do you get the support for that? But from other comedians who have done it for years. Yeah. That's the only place. Well, there have been moves to add some support to the structure of the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, but not enough, I don't think. Martin Willis did some great stuff last year and produced a booklet, but I was talking to him and he was saying the uptake of it um, with regards to the effect that it had was lower than he wanted. So it's something I'm talking to a few people about now because I think what's required is a kind of visibility of something that's available and B, what is available is good and immediately available. I think it becomes like an emergency service up, up there because when I've had, a, I've, I've done Edinburgh for like 10 years and I had one year where I really struggled and I would have loved something to be available where I could just sit down with someone that wasn't, yes, my partner or my, my friends in comedy um, to actually listen to me and be a therapist and talk me through things. Uh, if I'd had that, perhaps I wouldn't have uh, gone through what I did, you know, yeah. which, which wasn't awful, but it was bad enough. And lots of people are going through that. And I think uh, particularly as you as you mentioned, money, money and debt. And when the show starts to go wrong, that can really make you feel awful and you know worse. Oh, yeah. Just, you're just like, I've lost so much money and the show's tanking and I just got a two-star review and all I've done for a year is work so hard and preview it mm. and put myself out there emotionally and like, I'm telling, you know, and I'm just being so personal on stage and I'm giving everything and it's like, boom, two stars by somebody who's never even fucking done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, who do you, who do you get your support from at these times in the business? You know, you talk about... Um, yeah, relationships, and that was that was a nice thing. There is maybe a point at the Edinburgh Fringe where you can assess your relationship and be apart from them for a month. So maybe you're not with that person. Yeah. During, but at those times, are there? Are you looking to friends in the business or friends outside the business or I your old friends? I can't or? even acknowledge the existence of anyone who's not in the business while I'm at the fringe. <laughs> Just like friends that have nothing to do with comedy try to reach out. How's the fringe going? I can't even. <laughs> Just. Don't bother with me right now. Um, like my mind is so in that space. Yeah. Uh, I know there are resources out there for people. And I know that there are groups during the fringe who make it a point to get together for f emotional support. Mm. But I do think like I know the information's out there separately in podcasts, but it would be nice to have like, I don't know, like just like um, like a point of guidance for anyone 
because it's such a unique thing that it's not an easy thing to like just Google and figure out for yourself. Yeah. Um, it's something. It's something we're looking at. We partner with a um, a counselling service on this podcast, and it's something we're looking at with them at the moment. Oh, nice. Uh, Threadup.co.uk. So they are a um, specialist counselling service for creatives. So they're looking at it with the Edinburgh Fringe at the moment. So there's one or two ideas bouncing around, but yeah, a lot more needs to be. A lot more needs to be done. I think, especially from other comedians who have been through it, like yeah. the, the the ones that have done it for years. I think those are the that's those are the best resources because yeah. they actually get it. You know, like counselors who aren't comedians who haven't done the fringe but focus on the creative arts is nice. Yeah, but an actual comedian knows. I know exactly what you're going through. Yeah, but it's tricky sometimes in Edinburgh because those people have got their own shit going on as well. You those know, comedians and maybe they don't have the time for you to sit down for an hour or a couple of hours which is sometimes what you need as an emergency service as I say I think that's what's required yeah someone that will really listen and care about you people who listen in Edinburgh do they actually care about you? it's not a particular question to you but it's just an open question where people in the business there's a difference between liking you as a person liking your stand-up do you actually care for that person? Are you at that moment 100% for that person? Right. Yeah, though. I think a lot of people have the capacity to care. I know I can't I can't care about anyone not at the fringe while I'm at the fringe. I don't have the capacity then for others. But um, I'd be happy to... Like, if somebody reached out to me, even if I didn't know them that well and was just like, I just need to talk... You know, I don't know if that's true. If I'm being <laughs> totally honest, I don't know if that's true. I would mm. love to think that I would help. And I would help as best as I could. But sometimes, like, I mean, if you, if, if you have too much burden, like, you can't, you can't promise that you would focus on someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What, what I've done recently is recognize that. And you can have 30 or 40 friends and you think, have I got time if they... If they really needed me, have I got the time? Do, am I 100% for them? Are they 100% for me? Or have they got their own lives and we never really see each other? Is that a healthy thing? Or should I be focusing more on the two, three, four handful of people that are 100% have always got my back? I can always turn to and they can always turn to me. So that's something I've done mm. recently and focus more on those one or two people rather than the 10 people and try to keep those plates spinning that ultimately perhaps won't be there for you in the way you want them to be and right. vice versa yeah right yeah you just have to you have to focus on i mean i think that's all of life actually there's like three people four people tops that you can really fully be there for okie doke well let's um let's have a listen to your stand up at the brilliant top secret comedy club this sums up your style really nicely how relaxed you are and how uh, how funny you are it's hard when you're in a new country and you meet people because you don't know like when you meet people for the first time you're like did i just meet somebody who's typically british or did i just meet one asshole like you don't know <laughs> <laughs> and you're not assholes at all you're not you know but y'all vomit in public a lot okay? <laughs> You need to know that about yourselves. It's too much vomit. Just have a sandwich before you go out. A pickle. Anything. Just eat. I was talking to a guy outside of a pub and we were having a nice conversation. And then just out of nowhere he was like... Bleh. 
turned around, which was really sweet, and then he comes up and he's like, Where are you from? Uh, I'm from LA, we do that in the toilets. After we eat, you know, like normal. You with, do you like listening to yourself there? It's hard to you listen might. to yourself. <laughs> I noticed you kind of turning your head away and going, oh. I was just mm, on my phone. Yeah, like, yeah. I just don't want to hear this. Don't want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't care and love yourself, Maria, how, how can the audience? <laughs> oh, my God. This is so true. Because <laughs> um, even if they are laughing, if you don't love yourself and they're laughing, you're like, what are you laughing at? You, just, <laughs> you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Are, they, are any of those kind of things going? What is going through your mind when you're delivering stand-up now after doing it for so many years? Because... On stage, to me, as a fellow comedian, you're incredibly relaxed. You are, uh, you know, one of the most natural stand-ups I know. Very natural. Stand-up seems to be in your blood. But is, is there a downside of that? I mean, are you relaxed? That's the number one question. Are you Are you relaxed on stage? Are you Yeah. nerveless? If I know what I'm doing, yeah. uh, I'm pretty relaxed. If it's a club I've performed at many times before, I'm relaxed. If it's... Um, if I'm just in a groove, I don't know, like, cause like if I've been performing like, uh, a ton of shows that week and this is like my seventh show in a row, I'm relaxed. Mm. If I hadn't got up in like three weeks and I don't quite have everything in my head and I'm trying some new stuff, then I might be a little bit more, I'm, I still feel like it's a natural delivery, but I might be a little bit more like searching and whatever. But, um, so is there a downside of that at all? I've heard you talking in the past about a danger of disconnect and a, a danger of not caring enough. How much do you care about how much the audience are? You know, you've said that you do care. You want them to love you and pay attention. Is there a danger that if you're very relaxed and you're... Well, I think there's a difference between being relaxed and be, like being like, um, like void of energy it's, I, I think those are very different things. Mm. And I think when I was coming up, when I started comedy, I would get very tired because I was very scared. And that was my way of like, I, it's almost like I had, what's it called? The um, like stress-induced nar- narcolepsy. Right. So it's just, it was like, I was so stressed and so nervous that I, 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 I fell asleep. And like, so on stage, I'd be really like um, lethargic and boring to watch <laughs> because I was just very nervous and I was trying to slow myself down and Okay. I've worked very long like t- at at being natural and um not being nervous and I think I've overdone it and now I'm super chill <laughs> and but I don't think it's chill in a boring like no energy way. I think no, it's I think it's um it's just like it's just like it's like hanging out with someone in a pub which yeah. is exactly where I want to be but like the danger is is confusing that with with low energy cuz low energy is really like Mm. um boring to watch you can't always be like in the moment with the things you're saying because like i mean half the time you're you're focusing on everything in the room as you're saying the words so it's like almost like you're driving and you're listening to the radio you know what you're doing when you're driving so you're just looking around at everybody like this person looks bored this person's having a great time that person's wasted um you know who the comedians in the back of the room are laughing like you're taking everything in as you're saying the words so it's not always like a hundred percent easy to be present yeah um, but then, but sometimes like, you know, like I'll have a set that I've done a lot and I know it and then, but then I'll comment on something in the room or I'll add something new in the middle. And that totally brings me back to the set because I have to work so hard at like, it's like, where does this 
joke go? How do I, how do I word it? So like, um, you become more present then. Yeah. And how was it supporting Bill Burr in front of 15,000 people? What were the differences there? Not having done it myself, unfortunately. Um, uh, in front of 15, I, would, I would say it was a difference of 14,900 people. <laughs> <laughs> like it was all, it was all really incredible. Like, um, whenever you perform in front of thousands, which I don't know if you've, um, <laughs> God, I tell myself. me about it. God, um, it's so boring. Yeah. You have to, you have to readjust. You have to adjust your timing. Cause like the laughs come in in waves. How many times have you done it in front, in front of that many um, people? Um, when I was in Dubai, it was a couple thousand. Okay. I, when I was in DC, I, I did like the Axis of Evil tour years ago. Like that was in front of like 1800. Yeah. Um, so a few times. Yeah, yeah. And then like, yeah. And the laughs come in, like you hear the laughs in the front and then the back ones. I, I don't, I don't know how the dynamics of the sound works, but it definitely like it, it, mm. it screws up your timing. But, um, so how are you feeling about that before the show, during the show? Before the show, Bill was so like, we were catching up because we hadn't seen each other in years and he was, mm. he was just talking to me and he was like, hey, check out this YouTube clip. And I'm like, I'm going on in five minutes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but he was, it was good that he got me out of my head about it. Mm. And, um, but so I, felt, I felt really confident because I just felt ready. You know, yeah. like there's, there's just a time in your comedy career you start to support yourself and you go, actually, you've been working really hard and you deserve this moment. And mm. like, that's very unlike me. <laughs> But I did feel, it's like he wouldn't have had me on the show if he didn't think I was capable of doing it. Plus, I had just, I had been performing so much. Like, I, I was, I just was ready. And yeah. so it was fine. I wasn't as nervous as I thought I would be. And it was fun. Nice. And how was it coming back to tiny gigs after I that? made the mistake of going and doing cafe mode right after. <laughs> I and think I might was... have seen you just after that and you looked a bit down and I overheard you saying it was difficult. Did, did it's you... a difficult adjustment going yeah. from that to to three. to three people in the basement <laughs> of a pizza restaurant. <laughs> but that's comedy. It's always humbling. Like I retweeted Hari Kondabolu who was like, I just did a Netflix special and then I, and then I performed for eight people in Brooklyn who just stared at me. Yeah. Comedy is always humbling and it will always humble you. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah, God, must be difficult. So, so you've been in uh, stand-up, as I say, kind of all, all your adult life, yeah? Has it, um, do you think it's changed you at all? Do you think it's changed your minds for the better or worse? Or I think I've become a more confident, I think I've become a lot more confident since doing stand-up. I think um if you have the confidence to do what is what it is you want to do in life, like whatever that is, yeah, um, good on you. And I just I think that that makes for a strong person. Yeah, totally. Why it's important for mental health and happiness. So many people can't do what they want to do. I think if you're following your dreams and struggling, that's a lot better than succeeding in a place where you don't want to be. Right. Yeah. Which is which is another way of looking at mental health. It's something that David Mills mentioned. That thank goodness we've got this. Thank goodness we've got this, and we're struggling rather than other people that don't have anything. At least we've got this, you know. So that's another way of looking at it when you're struggling for money or success or whatever. And I listened to you on a really good podcast from 2014. Uh, the pool. That was it. Nick's pool house. Oh I, my God! You did your research. Yeah, I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed that podcast. Uh, wow! I don't. He really, 
he really is great and I found it really interesting and in-depth and one of the things that really sparked my interest was you and you've talked about here in terms of your style of stand-up and something you said there and maybe it's changed since 2014 it'll be interesting to find out that you can't handle people hating you so you were talking about maybe edgy comedy and you don't want to go too edgy because you don't want people to hate you and I just wondered how that's changed over time it just got me reflecting on when I'm when I'm working with new comedians or and I know you do you do some comedy coaching I'll often say that the best comedy is people that are going to be hated as well as loved Mm. and what you said in that podcast got me reflecting on this uh, to think, is that such a good thing to aim for? I'm telling these new comedians, well, you want to end up with thousands of people, millions of people, ideally, hating you. Is that such good advice? I'm not sure anymore. Uh, you got me thinking. Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between, like, not being hated and pandering. And, um, like, ideally, like, you'll find your audience and the people who really connect to you, and then, like, the other people won't matter. Mm. I don't know if, like, seeking out being so divisive or controversial that half the people hate you. I think Patrice O'Neill had that, like, half the audience should hate you, so half, half of them should love you or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Like, for me, I, I don't care so much about being hated, but I just, I'm not an edgy, like, that's just not my personality. Mm. Um, when I say it to people, I don't, I don't, I've never thought about it a bit about being edgy, and I don't think I'm edgy, but I just think naturally for people to love you some people have to hate you but again as i say after listening to this i'm reassessing that and is it important is it should you be going for that should you be because you were talking on that podcast about wanting to be tina fey and that's uh, uh or you know wanting that kind of career yeah and what a great career to have because as yeah. you say everyone respects her everyone loves her there's no hate for tina fey so why Am I, as a comedian, saying to other comedians, well, you know, the best comedians are kind of hated by some people, and is I, that the... I just think it's quotes not true, like, really, is I it? just think quotes like that are meant to protect people from worrying about what the audience thinks. It's like, just be true to yourself. Just do what it is you do. Yeah. And if people end up hating you, that's fine, because the people who like you, you'll build that audience, and that's fine. Just be who you are. Mm. I think that's, in the end, what they mean. I don't think they mean, like, figure out, like, how to piss everyone off and then, like, get half of them back or, or whatever. <laughs> um... It's just, it's just like, don't, don't do what you feel like you should do. Just be yourself. And if half the people hate that, fine. It's fine. Because uh. the people who like you, you'll build that audience and you'll still have an audience. Yeah. But do you have any particular issue with people hating you? Again, we've talked with other comedians that have said, I do have an issue with people in real life as well. People in non-audience members. So friends and... And not just hate, just maybe dislike or losing friendships. Do you have any particular issue with that, with wanting to be liked both on stage and off stage? We all want to be liked, I guess. But mm, I don't think I, I don't know why I said that back then, but I don't, I don't think I think about that much, very much mm. anymore. I, I don't really care if someone hates me. I don't know why they would. Mm. Um, Do you think anyone does? 
I'm sure people, I'm sure, I'm sure my posts, and I'm like, I'm in Paris again, and people are like, oh, fuck off, and like, you know, the unfollow <laughs> me, and I'm sure they hate me, but I, I couldn't give a shit. I used to like, every time I tweeted, I used to like, look to see if I lost followers, and then I would be really butthurt, like, through people unfollowed me, and I can't do that anymore, it's just, it's just like, whatever, if you want to be here, be here, if you don't want to be here, leave, and I don't <laughs> care anymore. Well, that's good to hear, because there are people that hate people in comedy, particularly whether it's audience members or other comedians, and they don't actually know you. Yeah. There's, there's hate in comedy, both from audience and industry, and I find it so bizarre that people go, oh, I hate that person, and I ask them, I make a point <laughs> of asking, do you know that person? Have you? And they go, no. You know, like, right. Um, never, you know, someone, remember very early on in my career, someone like, uh, yeah, about eight years ago, Someone saying to me, oh, yeah, my boyfriend, who's also in the business, oh, my boyfriend hates you. And, I'm like, <laughs> and she just said that to me. And I'm like, I've never met your boyfriend. And she, sa- and she looked a little bit embarrassed. And she said, oh, yeah, he still hates you. And I'm like, oh, Great. he's never met me. So he's hating me off the back of seeing me on stage, either reading some posts. I think it's. I think you want, as a comedian, you want people who don't know you to hate you because that means you're doing so well. And they go, <laughs> oh, well, do they really deserve this like amount of success doing that act or whatever? It's like, good. I'm glad you want to be hated because if people don't care, then like, yeah, it means you're not doing anything. Um, so in that respect, it's nice to have people hate you. Um, <laughs> life, life is cruel sometimes when people are hating on people that they don't know and they're making opinions. And I think the problem in the world right now is people throwing so much hate yeah. uh, against people that they don't know and have never met and have never sat down with and talked to and they're hating them for different reasons. So I have a problem with it. With regards to the state of the world rather than anything personally, I just yeah. kind of laugh it off and just go, well, you don't even know me. Why are you, you know? Yeah, um, it's really the easiest thing to do is hate someone for, for nothing. I'm terrified of comments online. I'm terrified of people hating me. Mm. And uh, so it's like I'm terrified to post videos and then have people be like, you suck. And it's like, because that's it's like, well, that's a, that's a hard thing to deal with is like this public scrutiny of, of your work. Mm. Uh, but then it's like you know what a lot of people like uh, people enjoy it in person and people online will enjoy it and then you might get some terrible comments but that will only help you get more views so is it really like worth like not posting because of some some idiots somewhere but it's interesting you say there that you are terrified of the hate I am terrified of it because it will uh, yeah like I don't know why I don't know why. I shouldn't care. Well, it's, no, it's very... It's totally reasonable to be fearful of hate. Totally reasonable. It's so difficult, though, isn't it? Because we have to put stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And we are going to get the hate for it. And that's why, you know, I come back to... I don't want to be hated and fearing fearing the hate. And it's... It is, it is difficult and it does hold a lot of people back. And it holds a lot of people back from doing what we're doing at all. I think it, I think it holds my career back a lot. Like how little I've posted my my life stand up online. Like hmm. I want to get better about posting clips online. And, and at the moment, you're not posting things at all because you're fearful of hate. Well, at the moment, I'm trying to figure out like what material I want to try to get on late night and what material goes into an album. And like if that doesn't work, then I'll post it online type thing. Like it's supposed. To, I don't want to burn material too soon if I'm going to use it for something else. Yeah. 
Or that's an excuse because I don't want to post anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Anything to do with uh, people you know, friends, family... Uh, you know, we've been talking about your family and I how am, they regard your career. Is there anything you I don't want to post there? I am overly concerned with what my family and extended family and friends of family think of me. Yeah. Overly concerned with it. When yeah. I, I got an uh, article published in Modern Love in the New York Times, and instead of be- my initial reaction was, oh, shit, my parents are going to read this. <laughs> like, instead of... <laughs> That was such a modern yeah. love was like a goal of mine for years, and I got it. And and I was like, oh my god, my parents are going to read this, and my aunt and uncles are going to read this, and my you know, it just it's like um because you know the Coptic community is a small community, and it's 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 like I have a huge extended family or something. Mm. And it's terrifying to think, but I, I I don't know. Like some comedians can have their parents and friend, friend like family come to their shows and, and be supportive and, and they love it and they like talk to their family about comedy and stuff and like I I, think that's the I feel so protective of comedy and like I'm scared for like my family to see it mm. and I don't know I don't know if like other comedians are in that same boat or if everyone's fine with their family coming to see them perform mm. but then I guess we come back to your father calling you at the same time every day and um, you know I think it's all rolled into that isn't it uh, you you've said you've you've questioned that call and but if you're fearful of them seeing it and fearful about putting things out online and um and feeling that that, that might not be the right thing do you think you'll ever put your foot down and say can we do it every two days or no is that i have not something tried you'd, that you'd it want? didn't work <laughs> it didn't work you could not pick up the phone Yep, I've, you know, but then they think I'm dead and that's very stressful for them. You could text them. Yeah, we actually, <laughs> it is text since I've been living in the UK. It has been text because it gets very expensive otherwise. Oh, okay. But just for ease of, because I talk about it in my show, just for ease of everything, I say phone calls. Yeah, yeah. But still a text and you'd have to text back within 20 minutes or to see Honestly, honestly, if I don't text in 20 minutes, he goes, hello. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I have it hanging over my head. Like, well, what time do I have to text my dad? Like, uh, you know, what time? Mm. There are things like this, though, that it's so nice. It's so nice to be loved by your family and your parents. But when these things you think could be detrimental, it's trying to trying to change. You talked about change and you were big on change. It's so hard to change things that have been there with your parents from a very early age. And it's almost impossible to, to deal with those things, isn't it? You, you sound like you'll just never change it. You've just accepted this is it for, forever. You'll get this text. You have to respond back. It's making you feel a certain way, perhaps. You're maybe fearful of putting stuff out there because of your family. All these things we we go through and we don't address I guess we just this is our this is our life now yeah I guess I just haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what the problem is Mm. so it makes it really hard to fight against and I have fought against it for for years and it's just you know it's just he he just won't he won't budge his budget his idea of a compromise last time I talked to him about it was um all right I won't text you you can text me 
which but but that means by 1:20 p.m. and if I don't hear from you, <laughs> I text <laughs> you. <laughs> so it's not like really a compromise, but it it was it was big fights about it. Yeah. Um but I I don't think that I have enough understanding of why it's so I just know that it's uh upsetting or annoying or something. Yeah. But I don't think I have enough like uh, of a of a case to fight his point. Cuz I I can't just be like I just don't like it. <laughs> I would really like to understand. Like I know it's sort of infantilizing and it makes me feel like a child and like mm. if, like I don't have enough autonomy or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's what I said at the at the top that we have an age, and then we, he's key, he's potentially. I don't want to say anything in terms of <laughs> a huge negative because it's very loving as a father, and I've got a daughter. Your father, yeah. Yeah, I'd probably want to be phoning her probably twice a day <laughs> to say, "Where are you? What are you doing?" Um, right. But but I will hold myself back from doing that because it is, it is um, treating you as a as a child, and your age then to him will still be a child and. It is, um, but again, it's a loving thing to do. Uh, final point on this, really, though. Out of these fights, has there ever been a time where, or, or would you ever conceive of saying to him, "I'm gonna, it's gonna be a week. I'm gonna not <laughs> contact you for a week, just to see mentally how that changes you and how that might improve feelings of feeling autonomous." feeling like you can put things out into the world maybe without so much fear yeah um i could i don't think you'll ever go for it <laughs> but he wouldn't have to go with it it wouldn't have to but yeah I you guess could the... say to him i'm not gonna do this for a week this is what i'm gonna do it's so difficult with a parent because you just want to do everything that they say he will be 77 this year mm. and i just i feel like it would cause him so much emotional stress like I, it's just it's just sort of one of those things where it's like, fuck it, it's just a text. Right. I don't know, but maybe maybe that's something to do. Yeah, yeah. I just know from talking to my family and when I talk to my mom, maybe once a week, a couple of times a week, mm -hmm. and she'll say, how are things going? And it's nice to have something to tell her. Yeah. And... You know, I recently got a bit of good news from a festival and was nominated for something and it made her, you know, made her day and made her week. Um, but most of the time, if, she's, if she'd be messaging me every day, I'd be like, nothing has happened. And also, if I had to tell her exactly what's happened, it'd be like, well, actually, it was bad yesterday or I was suffering yesterday. or yeah. And even if I didn't tell her, it'd be that as you... As you said, it's that kind of constant lying then to them to say, well, I'm not actually telling you what's happening. And, you know, it's uh, um, who am I to say what you should be doing? But um, I'd find it a struggle to talk every day mm. um, because there'd be so much difficulty attached to that. And I think, yeah, but as you say, he's 77 and you love him and it's so difficult. Exactly. So difficult. Mm. Right, thank you for coming here. It's been thank you for so interesting, me. as always. Is there anything else before we go with regards to, I don't know, the future? Where do you see the future? That 83-year-old woman, where do you see the future when you're 83? Do you ever look into your dad's eyes or your parents' eyes and wonder what, 
what you're going to have done by the time you're 83? Is there, is there any ambition there? Any goal? Any... I'm going to be a painter. <laughs> I feel like the comedy for this part of my life, then that'll move on to like a playwright. And then by the time I'm 83, more fragile, I'm not leaving the house much. I'm just going to have Amazon deliver me all the paint supplies and I'm going to be a painter. Then I'll become a like famous painter and sell all my work and become very rich right before I die. <laughs> That's the plan. That sounds fantastic. Basically, <laughs> get out of comedy. <laughs> Everyone well, get out of comedy. <laughs> That's what we should all be doing for our mental health and be painters. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. You're such a great stand-up, such a lovely person. And as I said to you before the recording, one, one of the most lovely things about this is getting to know people better, talking more in-depth to people. And um, it's something I always like to do more now outside of this podcast, get to know people and care about them because... Um, apart from stand-up that's all we have yeah to care about each other look out for each other and uh, it's been great getting to know you better here today thank you so much thank you for having me thank you so that is our show for today join us again next time for more psychomedy on apple Podcasts, spotify uk or wherever you get your podcast if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us and any psychopaths leave three-star reviews psychomedy was written and presented by me nathan cassidy bsc in psychology produced and edited by mike hansen ba english for pop people productions Theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at psychomedypod, at podpeopleuk, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Maria Shahata. Lots of love. Thank you again, Maria. Thank you. See you again next week. Ball.